Okay? All right, here we go. Page 169 through 181. That's what I read. Are there any, uh, any follow-up questions from last week about confession in the catechumenate? Everyone's okay with all that. Speak now for forever hold your peace. All right, page 169. What did you think? you want to start or you want me to start? I was hoping you wouldn't say that. <laughs> I'd like to go up and take some more of that cough medicine that has codeine in it. That's what I'd like to do. I've never had to show an ID to get cough syrup until yesterday. Codeine. Glorious thing. Yeah. All right, well. Well, okay, I'll start then. Um, one, of the, one of the most brilliant things that he said, and I think he said it fairly early on. Let me look here. Look at page 175. You know, that's getting ahead of the story. The point of the story section is uh, the great story that the Lord has for his people is the story of salvation. And there's nothing greater than the story of salvation. And that's exemplified in the, in the people of Israel. Um, you know that all of Scripture is death and resurrection. In fact, if you'd like to buy a book on resurrections from CPH, I can get you a deal. They're $15 upstairs. I know the author, um, so you could probably... That's a joke. (laughs) It's a rough group today. Um, But all of Scripture, all of Scripture is death and resurrection, which is just a fancy way of saying all of Scripture is sin and grace or all all of Scripture is law and gospel. So even in the deliverance of the people of Israel, you see... Um, death and resurrection, sin and grace, law and gospel. They're caught in bondage, which is a picture of sin. Uh, And then they're released from the bondage by the Lord doing the verbs. I thought that was brilliant how he kept talking about the verbs are the verbs of the Lord. And it's really the same thing with, with your life. And he says that at the very end of this section. He says, you're no different than the people of Israel. You're caught in bondage. Your Pharaoh is Satan. Um... Which is why, you know, this is the, everyone overlooks the flight of Jesus into Egypt. You know, right after he's born, Matthew 2. Everyone looks at it and says, well, isn't that a cute story? They walked past pyramids. And I've got an icon of Jesus and the Holy Family going past a pyramid. My in-laws went to Egypt two years ago. But it's much more than that. The people of Israel flee Egypt to get away from Pharaoh. Jesus flees to Egypt to get away from the new Pharaoh, Herod. So that, that story is not just, you know, Matthew's not just throwing that out like, oh, look, they took a vacation a few days after he was born. It's like, no, this is the reversal of, of what Israel did. He's coming back to make wrongs right. So Israel flees from Egypt to get away from the tyrant Pharaoh, and Jesus flees uh, Israel into Egypt to get away from the tyrant Herod. Both want his life. And that's why Jesus is, in a very real sense, Israel in one. What goes for Israel throughout their enti- the entire course of their existence now goes for Jesus. In fact, m- frankly, Mary is Israel in one, and she gives birth to the firstborn of Israel, who is Jesus. Okay? So this, this exodus, you know, uh, that's why we read it at the Easter Vigil, which is all about deliverance. You, all you do at the Easter Vigil is you just recount the stories of sin and grace, of law and gospel, 
of, de- of, of, of bondage and deliverance. And this is really the story. But um, that can't be torn apart from creation itself, which is the original point I wanted to make. Look at page 175. Underneath the three asterisks there, the very first paragraph, last two sentences, last three sentences. The week of salvation, and this is the week of the Passover, uh, in preparation for, for, being ex- for, for your exodus, the week of salvation mirrors the week of creation. The people of God learn that God who creates is the God who saves. Creation and salvation are of one piece. Do you have a Bible? Do you guys all bring Bibles to this? Look up Psalm 136, because you see this very clearly. And we talked about this at length at the Tuesday evening women's Bible study, but some of you aren't there, so just look at this. Psalm 136. Okay? If you have a Bible, open up there. That's all right. I'll just read it. No, it's, it's, it's no big deal. Psalm 136. Just listen. It begins about ten verses with the language of creation, and then there's a dramatic shift to the language of redemption. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now just listen here. This is the language of creation. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's all creation talk. Now listen. The very next verse. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. For him who divided the Red Sea in two. He goes on and on to recount the Exodus, to, account, to, to recount the story of redemption. Which shows you that when it comes to the Lord, creation and redemption go hand in hand. He does, he, you can't have one word without the other. Which is precisely why we're sitting upstairs and I said, see the hand of creation consecrating the chalice and the host. The Holy Supper is your redemption. That's why before they left on the Passover, what did they do? They did two things, and the second thing is almost always forgotten. They painted the door frames, but they also had to eat the lamb. This is Sunday morning Bible study. The Lord is on you and in you. Okay? Uh, and it's, a, it's the exact same thing that upstairs in the window. He creates with the same hand that he consecrates the chalice and the host. And from that hand, he delivers creation and redemption in one. That's what it's all about. And you can't separate the two because it's the same thing that happens to you, as, as Peterson says at the end here. He creates you knowing full well that he's going to have to redeem you. And yet in redeeming you, he creates you anew. It's just, I mean, it just comes full circle. He creates, he redeems, he creates, he redeems, and he'll never stop doing that uh, until you're in heaven and there's no need for creation or redemption. Okay? Everyone tracking that? Any questions or comments?
Yeah. Must have been a what? I'm sorry. I think it was in the Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. But here's a here's a here's a good question. How long has the Lord Lord known that he was going to send his son and redeem you from your sins? Throughout all of eternity. That's why the that's why the that's why uh, the epistles can say even before the foundation of the world, he knew he knew he would send his son to be crucified on a cross. He knew what they'd do to him. He knew he'd go to the garden. He knew that he'd be tortured. He knew he'd be beaten. He knew he'd be put on the cross, and he knew that he would redeem the sins of the world from even before the foundation of the world. So this is not here's the thing. This is not a reaction. The Lord doesn't react like that. It's not like. Oh, shoot, my people sin. Now I've got to come up with something. From even before the foundation of the world, it was his eternal plan carried out through his own beloved son and delivered to you by the Holy Spirit. These three did not just come together at creation. It's not like the Lord said, okay, we've got a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit. Since before the creation of the world, his plan has been to send his son to redeem you and to redeem all of creation from sin. Because his foreknowledge, what he knows is different than what he predestines. He doesn't predestine creation to fall. Okay? What? Oh, I'm sorry. I just was... Well, it's... Yeah, all I'm saying is he doesn't, he doesn't predestine his creation to fall. He doesn't say Catherine's going to sin. And I'm going to make her sin. He knows you will, but he doesn't cause it. Okay, we'll skip that. Anything else? No, no one else over here wants to talk about it. I'm done. It is hard to talk about it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Do you have any vodka over there? Should use a little mosquito right. Yeah, right. Your parents are Adam and Eve. Okay. Yeah. But when he created us, it was not his intention for us to sin. Right, exactly. Or then he wouldn't be a loving God. That's right. Because he doesn't want to force you to do anything. Here's a great question from Wednesday night sermon. Um, Kelsey Zempel writes on her sermon questions, because the whole sermon was, the Lord doesn't force you to do anything. And she, what's that? What? That was a very good question. She said, why doesn't, why doesn't the Lord force you down one path? Because force is in the way of the law, but invitation is in the way of the gospel. So he says to Adam and Eve, here's this great garden. 
You can have anything you want, just don't touch that tree. And here's, here's the thing. That's why the temptations of Jesus, what? No, but that's a different story. That's different. Because then he's forced, because then he's forcing you to do something. Because then it's force. It's not invitation. That's the wrong question. Wrong questions only get you. Yeah, exactly. But that's not the right question. The question is, what has the Lord said and what has the Lord done? The problem with Lutherans is that... Just one. But it's the root of every problem. Is that we always ask the wrong questions. The wrong question is... Well, that's fine. They're kids. You're adults. Well, we ask them too. Whoa. Okay, that's fair. Um... Anything else on the book? This is going down the wrong path very quickly. The right question is, what has the Lord said and what has he done? What he said is, here's the garden, don't eat from the tree. And what I was going to say was that uh, that's, why, that's why Jesus begins with the temptation. That's why Lent begins with the temptation. Because you're given to fast even in the garden. You can have anything you want, you just fast from that one tree. What happens is Adam and Eve can't help but eat the fruit from the tree they're given to fast from. Jesus reverses that curse because he fasts even when Satan says, don't you want some bread? You're kind of hungry. That's why Jesus is the new Adam. Everything that Adam does wrong, Jesus does right. And the, the wrong question is to say, how could a loving God put that tree in front of Adam and Eve if, they knew that he, if he knew that they were going to eat it? That's not the right question. The right question is, what has he said and what has he promised to do? What he said is, don't eat the tree. They ate, they ate from the tree. What he's promised is, I will send my son. And, and there is a, there's a huge distinction between what he knows and what he causes to happen. He knows all things, but he doesn't cause you to sin because then he's not love. Yeah, that's right. Right. That's right. It's all good. Right. That's right. Well, that's why, you know, Augustine says the first sin in the garden, do you know what it is? It's pride. You know, hubris is the great sin. And frankly, pride is what destroys all of us. Um, and it's, it's pride that says, I don't know if I can believe all that. Um, and yet, the great thing is, where sin increases, addition, grace abounds all the more. So even in the garden, as sin increases there after they've eaten from the fruit, I mean, it's pride. What even Adam say is, we can be a better God than the God we have. And to be real honest, regardless of what your sins are, that's usually what's going on in your head in one way or another. Even if it's, you know, I'll choose something else over going to church or I don't want to treat my family well. The reason it's all pride is because the Lord says, do this and live this way and all will be well. And you say, no, I'm going to go home and not talk to my wife. That's very prideful. You can't. Go to the supper, but uh, pride, I mean, 
pride is so deep into your, uh, I wouldn't say into your being because the Lord's better than that, but it's so deep into who you are. You can be a humble person. They're very humble people. And people who, um, you know, I can think of people that I know that have been Christians their whole lives that pride is not something that kind of defines them. But it won't totally be gone um, until you're in heaven. Because then, that, as we said last week, then it's Eden plus. It's whatever Adam and Eve had on steroids. I mean, it's better than that. And what they, what they didn't have, we'll all have a pee test up in heaven, and the Lord will say, oh, you can't play today. Joe, who was on steroids, you know, we didn't think he'd play in the state tournament. Um, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll be Eden plus, which means there's no pride. Right. Yeah. And the same point, and I, I had said this when I first joined the church, and you know what, and I really mean it, it was really an eye-opener for me to find out that faith and belief, it's a gift. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't do anything. There's, right. no, there's no conjuring up. You know how those little signs, have faith. No, no, that's wrong. I've been right. taught wrong all my life, so I always... That's right. <laughs> but and yet in doing nothing and fully receiving. This is why Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, oh yeah, I do. I do. But in doing nothing, you're pushed to do everything. And that's a great gift. Exactly right. Because you don't have to do anything. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. And the reality, you know, when we're talking about pride and everything, talking about that is almost like a good thing in our culture because we crowd it. Mm-hmm. Where you come from, who you are, what you know, what you know. Right. And I feel like that's such an underreality in that. Right. We really have no. Yes. Right. That's right, and that, that's very well said. Um, yesterday, your hus- yesterday morning, were you here for the Eucharist? That was probably the best sermon I've ever, I mean, I, and I've heard, I've heard your husband preach a lot of sermons. It was brilliant because the whole point was um, you're given, I mean, it, the unreality of this world says be the best person you can be. Have the, have the highest academic degrees, have the best job, make the most money, have a great family, have a great house, do all of this stuff. And at the root of that is this idea that you need to find in yourself who you are. Or as, as you hear it said, you need to find your voice. That is utterly anti-Jesus. Or realize your full potential. And, and, the, and he used find your voice because of what happened in the text. Someone came to speak and whatever. 
Exactly. Old Testament and make it plain as day all about Jesus. Right. Yeah. But the point is, Moses, the, the whole Exodus story, they don't say to Moses, find your voice. <laughs> I mean, Moses is very honest. I can't speak. I can't speak. And so he says, okay, I'll send Aaron. This whole idea that people need to find their voice is just, it's so prideful at its core, and it's just not in the way of Jesus. What Jesus says is, don't find your voice, find my voice. You know what I mean? Do what I would do. Speak the way I would speak. Live the way I would live. So that's one step in kind of corrupting pride. Yeah. That's right. Because you're not a robot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the great tragedies that Luther fought against at the, at the time of the Reformation was the notion that because of the gospel, you don't have to do anything. That it's simply, it's almost a life of sloth. The Lord pours his gifts into you and you just do whatever the heck you want and that's it. And so then Luther combats that with um, his great line where he says, "Good," and this is in our confessions, good works are necessary. It's not optional. It's not necessary in the sense that if you don't do them, you're not going to heaven. But in a sense, it is, because if you don't do them or you don't live the Christian life, you're not a Christian. That's why the book of James is actually, frankly, I think it's very good. Um, and, and, and at the time of the Reformation, even Luther didn't like it. Luther has this line where he says that the book of James should be used as toilet paper. Now, to be real honest, I think Luther got it wrong. But he, he comes back later and kind of says, no, 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 that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. So there's, there are two extremes. One to say, if I don't do enough for Jesus, I'm not going to heaven. And I think it may have even been the old Lutheran hour speaker who would say, uh, wouldn't he say what's done today for, only what's done for Christ will last or something like that? Yeah, exactly. Walter Meyer I would, would pray that. Now here's what's striking. Walter Meyer I also has his picture up next to Billy Graham in the Billy Graham Center. Okay? So that tells you where he's at theologically. That's one extreme from a Lutheran perspective. The other extreme is to say, it doesn't matter what I do. The Lord forgives all my sins. I can be a pagan. I can be a darn sinner my whole life, and it doesn't matter. Really, the Christian life is kind of in betwixt and in between. That's why we say you're simultaneously a sinner and a saint. You're given to do good works. And to not have good works show forth in your life, you really have to wonder, am I a Christian? That's a question you have to ask. 
Because Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds. Not that they see your faith, that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So your point is a good one. In receiving, uh, then you're given to do. But it's not a prideful doing, and it's not a uh, salvific doing. It's a, I can't help but do anything else. That's just my life. Yeah. Right, and that's why the only good works are ones that you don't even know you do. You have no clue. If you think it's a good work, it's... it's accident, yeah. Well, it's not an accident because Jesus is no accident. No, but what I'm saying is... You, it's, it, you don't know it. Yeah. That's right. It's usually, in my mind, a mistake. Yeah, that's... That's right. That's right. I didn't get out of the way on purpose. And that's and that's why you don't you don't even know when it happens. That's right. Does that does that good work still need to be forgiven? Yes. That's right. But every work, everything that flows from you is tainted by sin. Everything. So. But there's nothing wrong with planning to do good things. No, but those aren't, in the, sight, in the, in the eyes of the Father, those aren't, at least according to Scripture, uh, what he would deem kind of a, 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 a true good work. That doesn't mean it's not good. There are a lot of moral people out in the world. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of, and those are very good things. That doesn't necessarily mean that in the eyes of the Father, this is what, like as James said, you know, uh, you can't be saved without good works. Those aren't the kind of things he's talking about. But that doesn't mean they're not good. It does still mean that even those good works still need to be forgiven. That's why Jesus says, even your good works are like filthy rags. That's right, because at the root of everything is pride. I mean, that's why the very first thing we said was you can't, there's never a time in this life when you won't be prideful. That's just a sin against the first commandment, and it's a sin that, that taunts us every day. And so you're right, you wouldn't say, forgive me for giving a blanket to the guy in the street corner. You'd say, Father, even my good works are tainted by sin. Please forgive me. Yeah, 
Yeah, you're not asking forgiveness because you did something good. You're asking for forgiveness because deep down, I can promise you there's something in you that's prideful. Yeah. Even if you don't think it's righteousness, probably still some pride. Right. Yeah. That's right. He needs a lot more than that. Right. And that's, that's actually a good... Exactly. Yes, right. Yeah. Give him your blanket and your coat. You know, it, 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 just, it is true for having so much. Um, it doesn't mean what you've done is not good, but you have so much more to give. And, and probably, you know, a homeless guy is not the best example because that's what people always use. If a guy's walking down the street without a coat, you need to give him a coat. There's so many more things than that. But that's a very tangible, real-life thing. Yeah? Well, the, the distinction is fasting is something that's done for you, whereas a good work in, in, all, in the Christian life, frankly, is something that's done for someone else. Okay? That's why Jesus says, um, or Jesus says this all over the place, but the root of it is your faith is something that, that, that works between you and the Father. And I don't, I don't mean it in any sort of secret way like no one knows about your faith. What I mean is that's in relation to the Father. But as Jesus says, all of your love is in relation to your neighbor. That's why the post-communion collect is so gorgeous. Strengthen us in true faith toward thee and fervent love toward one another. So you work on two planes, a horizontal and a vertical plane. Your faith is strengthened to work with the Father, and your love is strengthened to work with your neighbor. Now, fasting is something that the Lord gives you as gift, um, if you'll take it that way, which is why Jesus says, put oil on your face. If you walk out and say, oh my gosh, I've been fasting all Lent, and I can't believe I'm doing this, you haven't run with the way of Jesus. If you take fasting as gift, you say, you don't fast to say, I want to suffer like Jesus. You fast to say, when I think of food, my, my mind should be pointed to Jesus. So that in the place of the knowledge and the desire for food, what? No, I, that's the point. Is it's, it's almost unbearable. But that's why it needs to start slowly. Okay? You don't, I wouldn't tell anyone, if you've never fasted before, you should fast all day throughout Lent. Maybe you fast before you come to the Eucharist. So for three hours in the morning, you say, I can't wait to get to the supper because that's the first food I'll have all day. That's and yeah. Then look how they love one another. I, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Even when we first moved here, some of there was a number of people that came over to get the house cleaned up. Right. And my sister, who was at the time just sort of a nominal church, yeah. Member, you know, she said, "All these people came over just to help you guys." I mean, mm-hmm. it, to her, I mean, I thought that was a right. Simply just cleaning. Yes. Right. And right. Down Yeah. In, they actually encourage other people right. to be careful, and they are, they're a great witness. 
so yeah, all, yeah, there's no, there's no such thing. I mean, maybe there is, but I can't think of one where there's such a thing as a private good work. Well, that, no, that defeats the purpose of a good work. Or it doesn't work in community. Right. I mean, Yeah. You know how it, uh, it talks about the story? Yes. Um, I found that with the three friends, I don't know if you ever remember how that, and that, that was a story that even if they weren't, like, didn't believe mm-hmm. in God anymore or whatever, that was still their story. Right. Which I always thought was interesting. But my question is, what is our story? Mm-hmm. And why is it that Christians don't seem to... I mean, we do have, I think we do have a common salvation story, Jesus on mm-hmm. the cross, okay? Right. But it's, what, I don't know, why is it that it doesn't seem that we have a common story? Yeah. You know, there's so many um, tangents which have led to, you know, denominationalism right. and all that kind of stuff. But it just se- it seems when, when you know, when you see how the, the story has unified the Jews and defined them as Right. It just seems very sad that <coughs> we are so, if we don't cling to a story in right. the same way. I mean, Lutheran cling to a story, Baptists cling to a story, you know, Presbyterians cling to a story, but right. uh, yeah. it should be common to all of us. Well, it should be. That would be the hope. Um, and, I, and, and I think your point is a good one. I, I would say people probably, Baptists and Lutherans and Methodists and whoever, probably cling more to a confession than they do to a story. <clears throat> that doesn't mean the confession is bad, because the confession contains the story. Here's what we confess about the Holy Supper. Well, that's a story. Jesus went in the upper room. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. But I think corporately, I would probably say that our story, boy, after taking that medicine with codeine, you stand up right away, it's like, whew. I would say our story begins in Luke 9.51, and goes all the way to Luke 24. Because you remember, Luke 9.51 is the transfiguration account. Okay? Who shows up? Moses, and I would say John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is the new and greater Elijah. He's already been killed by now. But you remember what it says in the text. Jesus spoke with them concerning his exodus. The Greek word is exodon. He speaks with them concerning his exodus. And from that point... The great, this is the best text in all of Scripture. Why? He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And what happens, and, and actually it says, if you read the text in the Greek, he sets his face as stone. There's no turning him back to go to Jerusalem. And what happens is in Jerusalem, this is the beginning of our story, which comes to fulfillment in Jerusalem. And it's fascinating that for a Jew, the story is the Exodus, and for a Christian, the story is the Exodus as well. Yes. He spoke with them, it says, concerning his Exodus. He's going to make his pilgrimage just like the people of God, except they go to freedom and he goes to death. But in that death is freedom. So this really is our story 
And it begins with an exodus as well. Jesus, from that point, he's going to Jerusalem. There's no turning back. And when he gets there, that's when it ends. Yeah. This verse, it's just one of those kind of throwaway verses that you don't even really notice. Exactly. It just starts the story. Exactly. And then he turned his face and he resolutely set the face mm-hmm. of And I remember discovering it a few years ago. I go, oh, wow. And I, I said it to Scott. He goes, he's not just setting his face to Jerusalem for me. He's setting his face to you. That's right. And, and that just, to me, that's one of the most beautiful exactly. verses in Scripture. And it seems so, like just a throwaway sentence. Almost. Yeah, exactly. Because what he sees in Jerusalem is what he sees in Jerusalem is you, the sinner. That's what he sees waiting. And this is the, whole, this is the point back at the beginning. He knows it's going to happen. He's not, he does, this, is not, this is not blindside him when he shows up in Jerusalem like, oh man, you mean I'm going to die? He knows this. This is the purpose of this the is, Yeah, this is it. That's why this text, Luke 9.51, I think is the, is the most important text in all of Scripture. And that really is, it's our story. It's, you know, it's 25 chapters, or, uh, 15 chapters of our story, which then ends with the meal at Emmaus, the Holy Supper, and his ascension into heaven. And all of that, he, and along all of that, he takes you with him. He ascends into heaven so that you can have a piece of who he is as God. That's why he ascends into heaven. What's that? Yes, right. To the end of Luke, 2453, I think, is where Luke ends. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yes, Moses is Jesus, and Jesus is Moses. This is, and, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. You can't make this stuff up. Well, and here's the point, Holly, that's, that's great that you are, you, are, you are Israel, because you know here, their story happens to Jesus. When, when the Israelites cross the Red Sea, what happens? 40 years, right? When Jesus crosses the Jordan, what happens? 40 days. Both in the wilderness. When you cross the font, what happens? Your mystical 40 days. Your life, this is why, Carol, although I I don't disagree with you on much, I'll disagree on this. Every Christian is given to suffer. Because what happens to the Red Sea, to the Israelites, is they cross and there's 40 years of hell on earth. Okay, well, you, but here's the thing. I actually would disagree with you. And here's why. No, 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 I know that. But here's the thing. If you actually believe you go to the altar and consume what everyone else consumes and that joins you together as a community, when this community has suffered, you've suffered. Yes, exactly. Yes. To say you've never suffered is, is really to say you're not part of community. Your life until you die. You've got your only... Here's the thing. So they go through and they have 40 years in the wilderness of suffering. And eventually they come to the promised land. Jesus has 40 days of suffering and eventually he comes to the promised land when he ascends up into heaven. You have your mystical 40 days, your mystical 40 years, and eventually you'll come to the promised land, Eden Plus. See, here's the story. Just to make it cute. Yeah. Here's the thing. Whenever you cross water, there's always 
hell on the other side. But the point is, eventually, and this is part of Jesus' hell right here, the point is, eventually, he gets to Luke 24 and hell is over. Eventually, you'll make it to your own Luke 24 and hell will be done. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Well, and, and you shouldn't say to yourself, I hope suffering comes, because Gainix says that's the only time you're going to be a Christian. This is why, if you actually believe that you're part of a sacramental community that's joined together in a concrete, tangible way by the holy body and precious blood of Christ, then what goes for the person next to you also goes for you. So pick your, pick your per, you know, think in your head of someone who suffered greatly or suffered not so much or whatever. Whatever it may be, cancer, divorce, anger, bad kids, bad family, whatever. In a very real way, you, that suffering is your suffering. And if it's not, then you're actually not, then you actually don't have the Eucharist. Because that's what the Eucharist is about. That's why, that's why, you know, table fellowship is so important. You come up there to bear the burdens of someone else. What's that? Whatever. It, that's fine. No, what, I, I'm somewhat facetious. No, I know you are. That's okay. With, I mean, with the idea of that is, you know, it's interesting to have different terms. It's the idea that you spread the risk uh-huh. and everybody gets the same. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. And so that way the person who actually has cancer, their burden may not be as bad because you're helping to bear it. Yeah. yeah. So in that way, we've all suffered, at least if you've had the Eucharist. Yeah. Oh, there's more suffering than just that. Me either. You know what? In fact, I need to apologize. I've been a little brisk today because I got a sore throat and I'm tired and. Can someone just go up and hit rewind on the button? Right. With everything he has towards that path. Right. And so that's what Scott said. I mean, where I said I never, I never looked at it the same. He goes, he's turning himself to you and right. all creation. He's going to. That's when he, you know, that's when the task of saving you. Right. 
really get started. I mean, exactly. He's all along, but, that's but he's all over he the, the place. He has a chance to resolutely do something right. else. You know? All over the Gospels, he's wandering. <laughs> you know, he's all over the place. When you get to Luke 9.51, he comes down off the mountain of transfiguration. Here's, here was the connection to, to Israel's story. On the mountain of the transfiguration, he talks with Moses and Elijah. And it says in the text, he spoke with them about his exodus, which is exactly what the people of God did. And from that point then, the, that's okay. Yes. Cross the Red Sea into the wilderness. And then they go back and then they are led to the promised land. Right. Forty years later. Forty years later. Right. Well, but they had a, they had a few problems along the way. Okay. Tapping the rock. And Moses never got to the promised land. That's right. He got to see it. Well, then you got like then they start fighting with people and stuff. I mean, they don't live the way. Then he fast forwards to the New Testament where Christ is. That's why it's important. That's why he's just trying to connect all that stuff. Old Testament was like, it's the new Moses. And we're in this world of Israel and we get to recreate that again. And we're Israelites because. Because you're caught in sin. They're in bondage, you're in bondage. They're in bondage to Pharaoh, you're in bondage to Satan. Exactly. By the way, yeah. I no longer want to go to Egypt because now I know that it was our people who saved the world after the Exodus. Wow. All right. I'd kind of like to see him actually, but what else? How about from the, um, you notice there was a plug in here for chanting. Did you see that? Page 176. And silence. <laughs> Two things I'm very good at. <laughs> at least the silence part. First full par- second full paragraph underneath the song. Song is heightened speech. Or uh, Augustine says, he who chants prays twice. Okay? It's the only way to worship. What's that? What, where's that at? Oh. You mean like in song form? Yeah. Sing it for us. In around now? <coughs> wow. It's around. Have you ever, I was just, I just said the second time, have you ever been able to sing, you take a stick of bamboo? <laughs> you take a stick of bamboo, you take a stick of bamboo, you take a stick of bamboo and throw it in the sea. It's about the Exodus. You've never heard that? If this pastor thing doesn't work out, I'm going to go out for American Idol. I don't think I'd be the worst, actually. <clears throat> Anything else? Okay, here's the thing. The meal, um, the meal section was great, I thought, because it's all about the Eucharist there. Page 174. Well, I did, but no one laughed, so I just kept moving. 
I thought here his, his emphasis upon, or his emphasis on the ordinariness of the meal was quite good. Because in a, in a very real sense, you know, it's, it's very extraordinary, but at the same time, it's an ordinary thing that we use upstairs. It's bread and wine. And yet it becomes extraordinary, extraordinary when the Lord transforms it. Uh, and, and, and he has this great line here, the sacraments are served in kitchen and chancel alike. doesn't mean you have the Holy Supper at home when you make dinner, but in a very real way, that is utterly sacramental. Families that don't eat together are missing out on um, an extension of the Eucharistic table. I mean, that, that's the way it is. Every meal then becomes Eucharistic, which is why... Go ahead. Right. Yeah, right. Right. It seems amazing because if you if you want to like lead a prayerful life and be constantly in prayer, right. Or you worry that oh you forget about God sometimes. If you start just recognizing and thanking Him for His gift, whatever you eat or have contact with water in any way, you end up all day doing it. Right. Thinking about those things. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes though when I read a sentence like that, thanks to God for reading the word of God for a little consolation. Yeah. I think did this man bring my grandmother wine and bread? I don't think so. Yeah, but we live in a church with whiny members. It is true. Kind of the same thing. But he makes the point that the Passover is to be celebrated over and over and over again. So, and then Jesus brings that out by, by, the, by the words he uses when he says, do this in remembrance of me. The word there is a word that means do this over and over and over and over again. It never ends. So to say, uh, and we have, people like, we have people that say, I'm not coming to church every week because you have the supper every week. That's not what Jesus says. Um, and he says, do it over and over and over again. And in fact, it never ends. When you get to heaven, uh, it's, it's a, it's an, it is a Eucharist. I mean, you're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the people who are there right now are already partaking of that. And that's why we can say, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, you don't eat alone. You just don't. But you actually eat the same food and drink the same drink of those who have gone before you in the faith. And that should come, I would hope, not only as great comfort, but a very real sense of community. One of the great things our liturgical designer does in many of his parishes is underneath the altar, you know, some churches, some Catholic churches have what's called a reliquary, where you put bones of the saints. What he does is he builds a reliquary, but in the bottom he puts in the book of the baptized and the book of the dead. So when someone is baptized, your name gets written in the book. I mean, Carol Tonys does this every baptism. We've got one. And when someone dies, your name goes in the book. But he actually puts those underneath the altar to show in a very real way that when you eat from that altar, you're eating with all the saints. Regardless of where they are, Florida for college or 
in the communion of saints. And that kind of community where heaven comes to earth and touches our community should transform who we are. I mean, if everyone in this place knew that we eat the same food and drink the same drink and are one with those who are in heaven, there's no possible way you could walk down from the altar and say, I don't like that person. Or, I hate that person. Or, I don't want to come back to this church. There's no possible way. The problem is, most people don't think about that. But you are actually one with the dead because they're not dead. Right. It's the do this. Yeah. Do this, do what? Do this over and over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And people have taken the in remembrance of me the wrong way. Any altar that says in remembrance of me, there's some, there's, it's not a sacramental altar. Because <laughs> their understanding is that's like a thoughtful remembrance. Isn't it great Jesus did this? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know when when people come to the altar, everybody approaches it in in a little different way. Right. Um, and there isn't any particular right answer to it. I do that in the things that you didn't get. But um, I've always I always like to kind of look around. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but in more we've talked about communion the last couple of years, it's also that it's not just about me going up to receive the gift. It's about seeing the other church members up right. there and coming down the steps in a different way. That's right. It changes that. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know we've even had conversations of communing within the bigger church. Mm-hmm. Right. At this time of all communion, so that there really is a sense of Kirby's not up there at the exact same moment I am. Right. Right. I'm also communing with my father. Right. Which is often why you can't find that there's someone you know. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Emma and Audrey understand the communion of saints. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the way it should be. It would be great to see other people waving at other people. I'm serious. <laughs> I've actually started looking. I mean, yeah, I, acknowledge that I we're both there. I've actually looking, and I've actually watched at the, at, when you give the, the blessing at the end. Right. I've actually started watching you. For some reason, I get a better, I don't yeah. know, it helps me. I feel right. a better sense of the community. Yeah. Right. Beth. Right. 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 Right.
right. And then there's a, a raising hand, so it really kind of yeah. encapsulates that moment for me as a child. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, that's better than Emma, who just yells out, Daddy, every time she walks into the building. Gail Galloway said yesterday, she's getting kind of noisy. I said, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the hands get tucked in. Yeah. Which I take is just she has a desire for the Eucharist. But um, Okay, one more thing. Did you notice kind of the overarching theme? He mentioned this multiple times, and it was, it was helpful. The idea of light and darkness. Do you notice that in the reading? If not, that's okay. Part of what we're trying to do throughout Lent is, is move you from this idea that, or move you to an idea that light and darkness actually matter. Matter in a sense that you don't, you don't live in the darkness anymore. You actually live in the light, which then affects community. But even how our church is oriented, one of the great things about the church up here is it is pouring with light. I mean, it just light, light just comes through those stained glass windows. And one thing we've really got to think about at the, at the other building is how best to get light. How best to get light. Because artificial light is just not the same as regular light. And so what we want you to be thinking is, it does matter that you're reoriented towards the light. That matters. Which is why this Lent, it's all about seeing the light for who the light is and then loving to be within the light. Loving to bask in the radiance of the light. Okay? And that, that forms community. You don't talk about anyone behind their back because that's not in the light. You just don't do it. But you're also oriented physically towards the light. You know, which is why you know, churches have directions. The Lord comes from a specific spot. So all that, consider all that as we go through Lent. But that's why we've got a huge emphasis on light and darkness this Lent. Anything else? Again, my apologies. I shouldn't be so brisk. Ooh. <laughs> 181 through, let's see, why don't you read 181, uh, yeah, is that where it ends? Could you read 181 to 199? Is that too much? Two weeks, that's right, because next week, basketball. All right. <coughs> Let us pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right.